Hey, everybody, and welcome to Murder They Spoke, a true crime murder podcast done by three (laughs) sisters in three different states. I'm Miranda, and I live in Georgia. I'm Chandler. South Carolina. (laughs) And I'm Ellen, and I live in Florida. And Ellen has a uh, our case for us tonight, which I'm super excited to hear about. I do. I do have the case tonight. How's everybody doing, though? Good. Good. Okay, liars. I'm sorry. I'm, sorry. <laughs> I'm good. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm good. Just trying to survive. The greatest thing about working from home is that when I go on my quote-unquote lunch break, I just go take a nap. <laughs> nice. Oh, enjoy that. I pressure washed my roof the other day, yesterday. I know. How's it look? Well, it's the roof. You can't see it. Oh, well, how did it look to you? <laughs> it looks great. I did the whole driveway and the whole house because we're going to paint the house soon. So, Did you clean like, out your gutters and stuff too? Like, show did. It was gross. Wh- when do you want to paint the house? Um, I've got to get, well, we have an HOA, so I've got to get it approved and turn in all the paperwork and crap, but Gross. soon. In the next couple of weeks, I'll probably do it. Yeah. Hey, let true. me just, can I just say that I am having the best time of my life? I don't love it. I love it. I have not been affected whatsoever <laughs> about having to stay home. I'm like, okay, whatever. It's just, the only thing is different is my husband's home. I do like working from home, but other than that, I don't like that it's like, you can't go here and you can't go here. I'm like, oh, that sucks. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just annoyed because, like, I finally stopped watching those girls and now (laughs) I can't even take my kids anywhere. (laughs) That's true. You finally, like, could do something with your kids that you want to do and you can't. Yeah, I know. I didn't think about that. Also, if for some reason those people ever listen to this podcast, because I do follow them on social media, I'm sorry, I said finally. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, love you guys. Love your kids. Anyway. um, Oh, and I have, if we get 200 listens on this episode, because I'm being realistic. (laughs) 200. (laughs) 200 then ellen has to post her song for quarantine yes. my quarantine song yes because yes, it was the best thing i've listened to this whole quarantine so <laughs> i want your full original recording because it was breaking up when you oh. sent it to us but okay. it was so good thank you well i actually got it i uh air played it or what's it called oh. i sent it to my laptop from my phone today Right before we started airdropping. Yeah, airdrop. <laughs> so I could like merge it all into one video because I had to do a Snapchat. Oh, you filter. recorded it in chops like that? Yeah, I had to use it in Snapchat because I was like, look, I am not going to use my normal singing voice in this. <laughs> I just can't do it. So I had to do a Snapchat videos. And um, yeah. All right. Just so all of our awesome listeners have incentive, she made a parody a quarantine parody of tangled's i've got a dream and it's hilarious <laughs> thank you yeah, it's pretty great so um and she's gonna go viral and then when she goes on ellen i'm coming with you so <laughs> ellen degeneres show not ellen. <laughs> that's really confusing <laughs> yeah when people ask me like what how to spell my name i'm like you know 
Like Ellen DeGeneres? Like the DeGeneres. <laughs> yeah. How else would you spell it? I don't know. <laughs> People are dumb. They're like, oh, so your, yeah. your full name's Eleanor? And I'm like, no, it's not. My name is Ellen. That's it. That's all you get. Yeah, that's like my mom. Her name's Beth, and she always has to tell people she's just Beth because everyone thinks she's Elizabeth. Yeah, it's annoying. Yeah, I'm actually sitting in my closet. Not the car this time? Not the car. I'm in my closet <laughs> because, I don't know, it got hot in the car, and the mosquitoes were coming in. Ugh. I actually left, accidentally left my garage door open last night, and Jeremy was in the shower, the kids were in bed. It was like midnight, and I was watching the first forty-eight, and I was really, really into it. And I heard this super loud noise. And I texted Jeremy. I was like, "What was that?" He goes, "What was what?" I'm in the shower. I was like, "Get out! Somebody's in the house." <laughs> so I run to the kids' room. I'm like, "They're all asleep. They're all here." I'm like, "I don't know what it was, Jeremy. What was it?" And he's like, "I don't know." So I was doing something else. Oh, I was putting the kids back to bed because they had woken up because of the noise. And um, he comes in and he's like. It was a trash can in the garage. I think a bear got into it. So a bear? Yeah, a bear got into our garage because I accidentally left it open because we grilled. I grilled last night. You have bears and, in Florida. Yeah, we have bears. We have little cute little black bears. And, oh, I love black bears. And I was like, "Well, did they get any trash?" He's like, "Well, there's nothing in the trash can." I was like, "You definitely took the trash out today, so I'm pretty sure they took the trash." So yeah, there's there was trash all in our driveway this morning. So oh. oh. Yeah, it sucked, but lovely. Yeah, black bears are cute. They were super cute. Don't you guys have that weird rule where you have to like keep your garbage in your garage? Yeah, and it was in the garage. I just left the door open. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. my gosh! Yep. So that was that. But anyway, let's get started. All right, let's do this. Let's do this. All right, I'm ready. It's my turn. Get it, All girl. Right. Okay, this one I've got about seven pages of stuff. Holy cow! Yeah. But um, I think it'll go pretty quick, maybe. I just didn't want to forget anything important. So here we go. Our story today actually takes place in London, England in 1949. And I want to give you a little bit of a feel of what life was like. So I'm going to tell you a few things that happened that year. London, England, 1949. Oh. The movie Hamlet, starring Laurence Olivier, was the first British film to win an Oscar. Rose Heilbronn and Helena Normanton were the first women to be appointed to the King's Council. The rationing of sweets and chocolate that was enacted during World War II finally ended, but it was soon put back into place because there became a lot of shortages very quickly as soon as they let them buy candy. And I can understand that. 1984 by George Orwell was published in London of that year, Love and that. the disposable nappy was patented by Valerie Hunter Gordon. Of course, it was a woman who patented the disposable diaper. <laughs> you go, girl. Yes. Naming my next kid Valerie. <laughs> no, I'm not. All right, so here we go. On November 30th, 1949, 25-year-old Timothy Evans walked into the police station in Merthyr Vale, South Wales, and he informed the constable on duty that he had killed his wife, Beryl, and her name's spelled B-E-R-Y-L, so it's like a pretty spelling, but her name is Beryl. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. He killed her and put her body down a storm drain. Dang. The police immediately went to his home to investigate, but when they looked around, they didn't find anything suspicious, despite the fact that there was a human femur leaning against the garden fence, which they did not even notice. Ah! They didn't see it. 
Yeah. <laughs> they simply cool. did not see it and they did not do a thorough search of the property. So Timothy then told the constable that his wife had died when his neighbor gave her a mixture that was supposed to terminate her pregnancy. The neighbor was John Christie and he was questioned and denied all of Timothy's allegations. And the police decided that Timothy had lost his mind and they left. They're like, this guy's crazy. They just left. They left it alone. Oh, gosh. But it later became pretty obvious that Beryl Evans and 18-month-old Geraldine were nowhere to be found. And the police returned to the home and they did a more thorough search, which then they found that the bodies of Beryl and Geraldine were in the wash house on the property. So it was like a separate little house, almost like an outhouse for... Maybe it was an outhouse. It says wash house. I was assuming like a place to do your laundry, but it might have been the bathroom. I don't know. Yeah, was all they call a washroom a bathroom? Yeah. Isn't that what it is? So it was like a little separate building on the property. And both of them had actually been strangled to death. Oh. Yeah. It's really mm-hmm. sad. So I want to go back and tell you about Timothy's history before we get into the rest of all of that. Timothy Evans was born on November 20th. 1924 in South Wales. His father ran off when he was very young, so he grew up in a house where his, with his mom and two siblings. And Timothy had health issues, such as tuber- a tubercular sore on his foot. And as a result of that, he missed a lot of school, which meant he didn't learn how to do basic things like reading and writing. So he wasn't considered very smart, and he was really behind on a lot of developmental milestones. In 1929, his mother remarried. And the household consisted of him, his mom, her new husband, his sister Eileen, and his half-sister Maureen. Then Timothy moved with all of them to London, where he worked as a painter and a decorator. But in 1937, he moved back to South Wales to work in the coal mines. But he actually quit really soon after because his foot made it hard for him to do his job. I guess his foot hurt him a lot. He moved back to London to the Notting Hill area in 1946, and a year later in 1947, he married Beryl Thorley on September 20th. She, soon after they got married, she became pregnant with their daughter Geraldine, and their baby was born on October 10th, 1948. That's my granny's birthday. Oh. Soon after Geraldine was born, the family moved to 10 Rillington Place. This is still in Notting Hill. And they lived in the top floor flat of the building. I guess back then Notting Hill was not a nice area because now it's supposed to be like a nice place to live. But unfortunately, Timothy and Beryl's marriage was anything but happy. Timothy had a drinking problem and the couple fought regularly. Timothy screamed at his wife and he occasionally became physical with her. But when Geraldine was born, their marriage became even more strained because they were super poor Timothy was a van driver, and that was their only source of income. So they could barely afford to live just as the two of them, and then having a small baby to take care of, it made it even more stressful for them. At the end of 1949, Beryl told Timothy that she was pregnant again, and that was about 18 months after Geraldine had been born. And because they were so poor, they decided that they couldn't afford to have this baby and that she needed to have an abortion. Soon after that is when Timothy showed up to the police station and then later claimed that his neighbor, John Christie, had given her a lethal concoction that was meant to abort her growing fetus. Timothy also told the police that his daughter was given to another family by John Christie to be cared for, 
but Christy would not allow Timothy to see her after he returned to his home in South Wales. But then again, John Christy denied all of that as well. He was like, yeah, this guy's crazy. So, Timothy, at the very beginning, you said that he went into the police station and said that yep. he killed his wife? Yeah, and then and then later he told them, actually, it wasn't me, it was my neighbor. But it... Okay, I just want to make sure I heard that right, because I was like... No, Whoa. you're right. Okay. He, he, he was interviewed a few times. The first time he was when he walked in and told them, and they talked to him again, and he was like, no, it was my neighbor, and they were like, what? So... That's that. Um, after Geraldine and Beryl had been found, the police questioned Timothy, and they asked him if he'd killed his wife and daughter, and he said that he had. During questioning, Timothy's story actually changed several times. And during his first confession, he said that the abortion drink given to his wife by his neighbor was what had killed her and that she was disposed of in a nearby drain. He said he dropped her drain, her body in a drain. And the police searched, and they didn't find anything. The second time he was questioned, he said that his neighbor, John Christie, offered to perform the abortion himself. And so Timothy went to work and we got home. He went over to Christie's house. And of course, they all live in this big, like, apartment type building. And um, he went over to check on his wife after he got home from work. And Christie told him that his wife, Beryl, had died during the surgery. And abortion was illegal. So Christie then told Timothy, hey, man, you need to leave. Leave your daughter with me. I'll take care of her baby. I'll dispose of your wife's body. It'll oh, all that's be a fine. good friend. <laughs> yeah, and Timothy, Timothy's like, all right, cool. And so he goes home to South Wales. And when he gets back, he was there for a little while. He was visiting his family. And he gets back. And then he says that John Christie wouldn't let him see his daughter. So after the second confession, the police returned to the home to do to do a more in-depth search and that was when they actually found Beryl and Geraldine wrapped up in tablecloths in the wash house of 10 Rillington Place very obviously strangled to death. Timothy was shown articles of clothing taken from the bodies in the wash house and he identified them as being Beryl and Geraldine's clothes. So then when he was asked about his dead daughter, Timothy Evans said that he had no idea she was even dead until the police told him because he thought that she was with this family that John Christie had given her to to be taken care of. He's like, I didn't know she was dead. I thought she was, you know, being fed and whatever, you know. The police question him for the third time and he's asked, you know, are you responsible for the murders? And he says, yes, yes. So he claimed that he and Beryl had been arguing over money and he became so enraged at her that he strangled her and hid her body in the wash house on November 8th. And he then said that he didn't kill Geraldine until November 10th, right before he returned to South Wales. So because of his contradicting statements, he was charged with the murders of his wife and his daughter. And then Timothy's trial for the murder of Geraldine, his baby, started on January 11th, 1950. And by the time it had begun, he had recanted his confession and pleaded not guilty to both of the murders. Instead, he said... John Christie, his neighbor, who claimed to be helping Timothy and Beryl, was responsible for killing his wife and daughter. His entire defense was built around the claim that Christie had been the one to commit the murders. And Timothy was like, I only confessed because the police wanted to beat me up. And if, they, and if I didn't confess, you know, I'm just trying to save myself from physical pain. And like they, he said the police were threatening him if he didn't confess. To this the dude is the most wishy-washy dude. I've ever heard yeah, of like you went into oh my my the police department, the constable on your own 
and confess the first time. Yeah. So you can't say they're threatening to beat yeah. me up when you started it. Yeah, oh it's my crazy. <laughs> so, right. So the neighbor, John Christie, was a witness for the prosecution. He gave this, you know, elaborate, believable statement and testimony that he's like, look, I didn't do any of this. I didn't help with any abortion. I didn't take any kid. I didn't do any of this. He also said that he's like, hey, you know, Timothy has always been violent with his wife and they argued all the time. So like, why, you know, this is obviously him. Why would he even say that I've done this? The defense were, they were trying to convince everyone that John Christie, the neighbor was actually the murderer and not Timothy. And so they brought up his own criminal past, which included past convictions for theft, malicious wounding, which I guess would be like assault Mm -hmm. back then. So the jury didn't believe any of this. Because of the reformation Christie had gone through during his time serving on the police force during World War II. And because of his experience, he had become this respectable and upstanding man. He totally changed his life. And that was all, you know, back in the past. He was this young guy. And he had no motive for murdering this young woman and her baby. And the jury just was like, absolutely not. He did not do that. So Timothy's trial lasted three days. And the jury deliberated for 40 minutes before returning with a guilty verdict. And on March 9th, 1950, Timothy Evans was hanged until he was dead by Albert Pierre Point, one of England's most famous hangmen. And it's always the husband, right? Or is it? Oh, gosh. This dude seems yeah. crazy. How could it not be him? That's what everybody That's what else they said. want you to think. Yeah. yeah. But after Timothy's trial, life took a downward spiral for John Christie. He was a hypochondriac, and it got even worse after Evans' Evans' trial. Christie lost his job as a postman, and he and his wife began to argue more and more. She eventually left him and returned to Sheffield to live with relatives, and as Christie told her friends. He soon had to sell his furniture and belongings to be able to pay the rent, and when he ran out of money, he eventually had to move out of his flat at 10 Rillington Place. So after he left the flat, the landlord was allowing another tenant that lived there to use the kitchen. And I was trying to figure out, like, why would he need to use the kitchen? But maybe because it was, like, this big house type thing. I see, I don't even know. I don't know why he would need to use the kitchen. Anyway, so the man's name was Beresford Brown, and he was hanging a shelf for his radio in the kitchen when he found a hollow wall. And he was like, oh, that's pretty cool. So he pulls the wallpaper off the wall. Oh, my God. And he exposes what was behind oh. it. And what did he find? But a closet door. And at that same oh time, he made a grisly discovery. Inside the closet were the corpses oh. of three women. <gasps> wrapped in cloth, just like Beryl and Jerry. Were they all strangled too? Oh, sorry. Just sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. It's, it's, it gets oh my gosh. crazier, you guys. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So the police were immediately notified, and because there had been two murders committed at the very same house, they did this super thorough search of the property. Chief Superintendent Peter Beveridge, Chief Inspector Percy Law, and several other officers and the coroner arrived at the flats, and when the cupboard door was opened, they saw the corpse of a woman with her back to them. She was leaning forward towards the wall. Behind her was a blanket that looked like it was wrapped around something large, and it was also tied to the back of the victim's bra, which was pulled up to her neck. 
Besides the bra, all she had on was her garter belt and stockings. Her black sweater and a jacket had been pulled up high around her neck. When she was removed from the small room and examined, it was clear that she had been strangled with a ligature. Her wrists had been tied in front of her with a handkerchief, and it was tied into a reef knot. The police then turned their attention to the object that had been behind the first body. When they unwrapped it, they discovered that it was the body of another woman. She had been placed on her head and propped against oh. the wall, and the blanket around the blanket around her had been tied with a sock, also with a reef knot, and around her ankles and her head was wrapped in a pillowcase. I don't know why the worst part of that to me Sorry. was the fact that she's on her head. <laughs> right? Isn't no, that no, the weirdest thing? That's like thing? bothered so me, her- but I was like, why is she no. on her head? Like, and then leaning against the wall, yeah. like like a perpetual handstand, headstand. Exactly. Yeah. So her ankles are tied with an, a reef knot again. Her head was wrapped in a pillowcase, also tied with another reef knot. The third bundle they found was another body. She was also upside down. Her head had been un- underneath the second body with her ankles tied with electrical cords and a piece of cloth or covered her head, again using a reef knot. Upon further searching of the house, the investigators found some loose floorboards, which they pulled up. Underneath, they found loose rubble, and when they started to dig more, when they started to dig more, they found the body of a fourth woman. Ooh. Oh my gosh. Yes. All in his apartment. At the mortuary, all in this man's apartment, yes. At the mortuary, an autopsy was done, and these were the results according to murderpedia.org. Which is a great website, by the way. Okay, and this is kind of long, but I, I just, I was so fascinated by these autopsy results, you guys. Okay. I just need to read them to you. And these are results for Lay all four us. women. All four women. Okay. All right. And the body number one. She was brunette, around age of twenty. How old was this guy again? Chris, Chrissy, Chrissy John Christie was in his fifties. Okay. Um. Okay. So. Body number one was a brunette female around the age of 20. She had been dead about four weeks, and she died from strangulation and carbon monoxide poisoning. She was thought to have been under the influence of carbon monoxide when she was strangled with a smooth surface cord, which sounds to Mm -hmm. me like an electrical cord, because there's no abrasions on it like a rope would be, you know? Yeah. She had been sexually assaulted either right before or shortly after her death. Scratch marks on her neck showed that she had been dragged across the floor after she died. Body number two. Mm -hmm. So the woman that was second in line, I guess. Mm -hmm. She was around 25 years old with light brown hair, poorly manicured feet and hands, but but healthy. She was a healthy lady. So that makes me think that maybe she worked, like used her hands for work, like cleaning or whatever. She was pinkish in color, which was a sign of gas poisoning, and had also been asphyxiated by strangulation. She had also had sexual intercourse around the time of her death and had been drinking heavily the day of her death. She had on a cotton cardigan and vest, and another white vest had... This is strange to me. Another... A a white vest was placed between her legs like a diaper. Oh, that's weird. And she had... Yeah. Right? She had been dead for 8 to 12 weeks. Mm. Yep. Body number 3. Blonde. Around 25 years old. Poorly manicured. She was wearing a dress 
petticoat, bra, cardigan, two vests, and also had material between her legs, like a diaper. Her pinkish coloring also suggested that she had been gassed and asphyxiated, and she has also been drinking the day of her death, which was thought to be about 8 to 12 weeks earlier, like the previous girl. But this girl, girl number three, was six months pregnant. Now, here's body number four. This lady was in her 50s, plump, with several missing teeth. She had been rolled up in a flannel blanket, her head covered with a pillowcase, a silk nightgown, and a flowery, flowery dress were wrapped around her under the blanket. She had on stockings that were pulled up and had been dead for 12 to 15 weeks. But, unlike the younger victims, this woman had not been gassed or sexually assaulted, but she had been strangled with a ligature. The police continued their search through the entire flat. They, like, looked through everybody's apartment. And they found a men's suit under the floor of the common area in the hallway, which was an area that had been open during the time that Beryl and Geraldine had been murdered. In the kitchen cupboard, they found a man's tie tied into a reef knot. And in another area of the flat, they discovered potassium cyanide and a tobacco tin that held four clumps (gasps) of women's pubic hair. Which did not belong. Oh. Which did not belong to any of the bodies. Oh found man! Mm-hmm. It's oh, crazy. That's disgusting. <laughs> no. The search continued into the back garden, where they finally noticed the human femur that was being used to prop the fence up. In the flower bed, they found more bones, as well as a dustbin where they discovered blackened skull bones, teeth, and pieces of a dress. They found even more bones under the orange blossom bush, as well as a bit of hair and some more teeth. And even though they only found one skull, they determined but through, like, you know, taking it all to the more or the medical examiner that there were actually two bodies buried in the garden. So they reconstructed them. There were two bodies. Both victims were female. One was determined to be from Germany or Austria, around 21 years old and about five foot four. The other was thought to be a little bit older, around 32 to 35, and 5 foot 2. Both women had been in the garden for at least three years and could have been there for up to 10 years. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, the police were able to identify the bodies in the cupboard as Hectorina McLennan, who was 26 years old, Kathleen Maloney, who was also 26 years old, and Rita Nelson, 25 years old. The woman found under the floorboard was Ethel I thought Christie. so. I was like, that's going to be his wife. Mm-hmm. From the garden. Oh. I but know. the two in the I garden are older than her, like, in, in terms of how long ago they were killed. I thought maybe he killed his wife and exactly. then started doing this. But you have at least two bodies that he killed, you know, three years before he killed his years. wife and then the other, four, uh, the other three women. Interesting. So in the garden, they discovered that Ruth Margaret First, who was five foot eight and 21 years old, had arrived in England from Austria in 1939. She had been missing since August 24th, 1943. Exactly 10 years later was when her body was found in that garden. The second victim in the garden was determined likely to be 32-year-old Muriel Amelia Eddie. Edie. She had worked at a factory with John Christie. She was five foot one with dark hair, and the hair 
that was found in Christie's garden matched hair from one of her dresses that was still at her former home, and she had also been wearing a black wool dress on the day she went missing, which matched the remains found in the in the garden soil. <sighs> yeah. The discovery of these bodies prompted a citywide manhunt for John Christie, and after 10 days of searching, he was finally found under the Putney Bridge in London. <sighs> so, let's talk about John Christie. John Reginald Christie was born in 1899 in Yorkshire, England. He grew up in a household where his father was the disciplinarian and his mother was super, super overprotective. John was a loner at school, but he was really intelligent and he excelled at math with an IQ of 128. He was also a choir boy and he was able to achieve the rank of a King Scout, which is the highest rank of, in the Boy Scouts in England. It's been theorized by psychologists that Christie hated women because of the ridicule he received when he was a teenager for being sexually inadequate. He later said, all my life, I've had this fear of appearing ridiculous as a lover. When he was 15, he left school to serve as a signalman during World War I, where he was attacked with mustard gas that he claimed temporarily blinded him and caused him to be afflicted with hysterical muteness for three years. And I had no clue what hysterical muteness was. But apparently it's pretty outdated and uncommon in recent medical history. But from what I could tell and what I read from an article about hysterical mutism written for this French medical journal in 2001. And I'm going to cite that in the sources on the website because I am not even going to try to pronounce any French names because I will just <laughs> like dig myself a hole there. But in this medical journal... A person becomes mute for a period of time after some kind of traumatic experience, and it can be voluntary, but it's difficult to diagnose. And most patients suffering from this recover after about three months, which I find interesting because John Christie says he was mute for three years. And I think that's, that's a long time where like, he like wouldn't speak above a whisper is what people said. And a lot of people thought that this was his way to get attention. So he had this difficult childhood. He didn't like women. He was a controlling hypochondriac. And, and this was all thought to be the reason for his visit to sex workers by the time he was 19 years old. And in 1920, he married Ethel Simpson Waddington. But even though he got married, that did not end his frequent visits to his other lady friends. So he got his job as a postman. John Christie was sent to prison for three years after stealing postal orders. And then when he was released from prison, he was put on two-year probation for violent behavior. He was also convicted of obtaining money from people on false pretense, violent conduct, larceny, hitting a sex worker over the head with a cricket bat, and stealing a car from a priest. <laughs> of all people. <laughs> of, all, of everything that you said, that last one gets it. Stealing a car. Yeah. So according to biography.com, quote, he also left Ethel around this time and moved to London, leaving her to support herself in Sheffield. By 29, he was back in prison on theft charges, and he spent nine months incarcerated before moving in with a prostitute. Their words, not mine. I didn't call her a prostitute. I'm just reading the quote. Then a further six months inside for assaulting her. So I'm assuming this is the girl he hit with the cricket bat. He was oh, also suspected. worker. <laughs> I know. He was also suspected of other assaults on women, but no charges were brought. A further spell in prison for car theft followed, after which he asked his estranged wife Ethel to come and live with him in London, 
which she did in 1933. The visits to prostitutes, again, not my word, to relieve his violent sexual urges continued, which by now also included elements of necrophilia, and these urges intensified over the next decade. Close quote. What's necrophilia? Having sex with a dead body. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Christie's first murder happened in August of 1943 when he strangled Ruth first to death during sex. He hid her body under the floorboard when he found out his wife was actually on her way home from visiting her brother. This was in Sheffield. He was, she was in Sheffield. She was like, she sent him, I think a telegram or she might've called him, but she's like, so he hides her under the floorboards. And when his wife leaves her work the next morning, he moved Ruth to the wash house while he dug her grave. Ethel actually came home during his digging of the grave and she interrupted it and they, he stopped and had tea with her and then waited until she went back, went to bed that night to finish digging Ruth's grave. And then he buried her and then went to bed himself. He's quoted as saying the next day I straightened the garden and raked it over. He then pulled some of Ruth's clothing out of the hole and burned it. And months later he accidentally unearthed her skull so he put it in the dustbin so it could be burned with other trash. Isn't that nice? Mm-hmm. Christy said, quote, I remember as I gazed down at the still form of my first victim experiencing a strange, peaceful thrill. Oh, so that's yeah. why they only found one skull. Yeah, because he burned it to crust. Ugh, he's such a creep. In October of 1944, when Ethel again went to visit her family in Sheffield, he murdered a woman that he worked with named Muriel Amelia Eddy. Or Edie. I think it's Edie. He told her that he could cure her bronchitis with his special mixture. He had her breathe in gas, and it weakened her enough that Christy had the opportunity to strangle her with a stocking. He said, quote, I had intercourse with her while I strangled her. Uh. Again, he placed her body in the wash house while he dug her grave and then buried her fully clothed close to Ruth's final resting spot. When Christy found out that Timothy and Beryl Evans wanted to abort their baby, he thought, ooh, what a great opportunity. He told them that he could help them. On November 8, 1949, he used his, quote, special mixture to knock Beryl out and then he strangled her to death and then he raped her after she had died. When Timothy returned from work and went to check on his wife, Christy told him that Beryl had died during the procedure and that they had to hide her body because abortion was illegal in England. Timothy then returned to Wales under the instruction of Christy. Remember, he told so him, he was telling the truth. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Oh my god. Around mid-December 1952, when Ethel Christy disappeared, John told neighbors that she had taken another trip to visit her family, and he told her relatives where she was supposed to be, that Ethel was sick and unable to communicate with them. And he would, like, send letters and gifts that were signed as coming from the two of them. But Ethel wasn't sick. John had strangled her and hidden her body under the floorboards in the parlor. When the room started to smell and the neighbors began to complain, John began to use strong disinfectants to hide the scent. 25-year-old Rita Nelson was John Christie's next victim. She had been a sex worker that found herself pregnant, and John Christie persuaded her to come to his home so that he could help her end her pregnancy. She was killed the same way as Beryl Evans on January 19, 1953. Her body was the first to be hidden behind the wall in the kitchen. The second woman placed in the alcove was 26-year-old Kathleen Maloney. She was also poisoned with carbon monoxide, strangled to death, 
and then raped before joining Rita Nelson behind the wall. Christie's last victim would be 26-year-old Hectorina McLennan, and she was killed the exact same way as the last two, and she was the final victim placed in the wall before Christie wallpapered over it and then hit the road. He was like, yeah, I'm out of here. So he was, John Christie was arrested on March 31st, 1953. He claimed that most of the murders were mercy killings, and his confessions were filled with lies about why the women were killed. The day after his arrest, he was charged with the murder of his wife, Ethel, and on April 15th, he was charged with the murders of Kathleen, Rita, and Hectorina. His trial began on June 22nd, 1953, in the exact court where Timothy Evans had been tried and convicted of murdering his wife and daughter. The jury said, I don't think so, when he tried to insert this insanity plea. They were like, yeah, no, you know what you're doing. And they said that the fact that he had the mind to conceal his crimes meant that he was not insane, and he knew Mm -hmm. exactly what he was doing. Yeah. The trial lasted for a total of four days, and it took less than an hour and a half for the jury to declare that Christy was guilty. He never confessed to murdering little Geraldine Evans, and he was never convicted of the murder either. He did not appeal his murder conviction for he was for his wife, and he was sentenced to death by hanging on July 15th, 1953. His executioner was none other than Albert Pierpoint, the man who had also hanged Timothy Evans. While being prepared for his hanging, John Christie complained that his nose was itching, to which the executioner replied, It won't bother you for long. Oh, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. So the wrongful conviction of Timothy Evans played a huge part in the 1965 abolition of capital punishment in Britain. And in 1966, he received a pardon. But the, what I find interesting is he received a royal pardon, but they never said that he, that he was never acquitted. Because Chrissy never um, admitted to killing the baby. Mm. So he was never acquitted of... Timothy was never acquitted of what he was charged with. So what's a royal pardon? Kind of immunity. Not immunity, but he's like, oh, I for- you're forgiven for what He would did. go down in history pardon. as having murdered his wife. But the... Yeah, mm-hmm. you could give a royal pardon, which basically meant, like, you're excused from this conviction. You didn't do it. We know you didn't do it. So that he's yeah. not in, the his- in history, in histor- historical books, I guess, as having done this. They didn't overturn the conviction, but he was pardoned for it. Like, yeah. Okay, gotcha. They were yeah. just saying, oh, hey, yeah, we messed up. But I guess... The only problem I have with all of this um, is why didn't he go to the constable in the beginning and say, hey, this Christy guy, my neighbor, has killed my wife and my child, blah, blah, blah. He went in the very first time and said, I've killed my wife and I've put her in the drain. Like, he voluntarily yeah. said that and got it all started in the beginning. Maybe he, like, threatened Timothy. Maybe he was like, if you don't go in there and tell them that you killed her, well, then... one thing is, is John Christie was very, very intelligent, and Timothy Evans had an IQ of about 72. He was not smart. Yeah. And a lot of people thought he was probably mentally challenged as well. 
So I think he could have made him believe he did it. Yeah, he was very impressionable. I think that it was there were a lot of also and this this just popped in my mind. But if he was uh, gassing him, he could have used a little bit of gas over long periods of time on uh, Timothy Evans, and you know that really messes up your brain, and maybe essentially kind of like brainwashed him into yeah maybe thinking he did this yeah i mean i don't think they ever said that he spent they spent time together Mm. they weren't friends or anything they were just neighbors that he was like oh you got a problem i can help you out with that. that's so crazy though that's so crazy yeah that is wow but and so they never figured out what happened to the little girl well they never she was strong confessed to it but it's like yeah she was killed in the exact same way as everybody By else. her mom. Yeah, so he probably... I, I think that for Christy, it would be like... It would be... Yes, he's a murderer. He's killed all these women. But killing a baby is completely unforgivable. You know? Yeah. A lot of... A lot of murderers or serial killers or whatever, they won't... If they started... If they've killed a baby or a child, they won't yeah. confess to it. They'll only confess to the adults they've killed because they just can't... Like, that's even worse than what they've already done. They won't admit to it. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. I wonder why her, Timothy Evans' wife's body, he talked about it smelt when he put her under the parlor, but three bodies behind the kitchen wall didn't stink. Having his wife under the parlor floor didn't stink. They only talk, he only talks about like only one of the bodies smelling, but how do you have three dead bodies behind your kitchen wall? And like, that's not three times worse, you know, like, um, I think the neighbors did complain about how bad it was smelling around the whole place, but I think uh, he also kind of sealed that door with the wallpaper and glue. Cause back then you had to put a lot of glue on the wall to put wallpaper up trapped it all in so okay that, that makes essentially sense. sealed that door closed i would assume oh yeah. can you imagine opening that door yeah. oh <laughs> that's what i was thinking the whole time could you imagine being the guy that opened the door and found all those bodies <laughs> like, dude, he just wanted a radio i know well, hey <sighs> thanks to him who knows how many more women hey, he, he saved so Oh, I totally would have been like, oh my gosh, a secret door. (laughs) Ellen's got her gloves on. She's like ready to go. I have a whole box of nitrile gloves. (laughs) Thank you, Jason. (laughs) Totally a snooper. I would definitely. On a total random note, I wonder how bad the executioner felt when he's like, dang, I killed an innocent man. Probably pretty dang bad. I mean, that's, that's pretty crappy. I feel like if you're that guy, though, you're so used to you separate it. That you like just like find a way to point to do without it getting to you. Yeah, yeah. You would. You you have no emotional attachment to anything or anybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so I just looked him up. The hangman. He executed Mm -hmm. between four hundred and thirty-five and six hundred people in a twenty-five-year career. Wow. Wow, his dad and uncle Dang. were also hangmen. Family, family career. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Family business. How much do you get paid to do that? I feel like that's an easy job. Well, what where do you get that gig? 
He actually said when he was 11 years old. Gotta have goals, to man. The official executioner. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Or maybe you just really enjoy killing people that do bad things. Yeah, well, his dad died when, in 1922. Albert inherited oh. all of his notes and journals that his dad had kept on how to hang people. And he was studying oh, that's them. Awesome. And he, he was like, yes, this is what I want to do. Could you imagine having a conversation wow. with that guy? I know. I'd love to get my hands on those journals. Okay, what was the what was the first yeah, name um, of Christy? John. Aha. Uh-huh. Oh, he's like the first thing that pops up. I just want to see a picture of him. Oh. He looks normal, right? Uh, he doesn't look like... He looks well, like and he served in World War II and World War One. Well, he served in World War One, but in World War Two, he was That's a crazy. police officer. What was yeah. it, Timothy Evans? Mm-hmm. Yes. Aww. I just can't get over the fact oh that God, he started all of it by confessing. Yeah. The husband. Yeah, yeah. I think That's I think crazy. he was manipulated into believing that maybe he did it. Oh, absolutely. He had such a low IQ and this other guy was so intelligent and had such a high IQ and was mm-hmm. so manipulative already. Well, he was getting you know. people to, like, come over so he could – I don't – I would never – okay, I guess never say never, but I don't picture myself being like, oh, sure, I'll come over and try this thing that you've made to see if it will kill my baby. I don't know. Yeah. Well, when you're that true. desperate, though, they can barely afford to feed themselves and they're already that's one true. child. I mean, they were dirt poor. He was a van driver, and they lived, you know, in London. It's like... But I mean, like, even if I like, if I was one of the girls, though, and he was like, oh, come to my place, oh, and I yeah. would be like... Oh, you've got uh, that bad cough? Come over know. and inhale my special concoction. I'll make it go away. Yeah. Like, it's okay. I'm not that desperate. <laughs> yeah. I'll figure something else out. Back then, they, back then they were. I mean, 1940. 49 to like 19 in the 40s and 50s if you were a single pregnant woman you were scarlet lettered like but what we're saying is not all of them were pregnant the second woman he the second woman that was in the uh room behind the kitchen was a woman he worked with yeah well he said hey bronchitis well i mean she trusted him she trusted him because she worked with him. yeah that's just crazy People and yeah. like back then, people didn't think anything like that was happening. Even in the in the seventies and eighties, that's they very didn't true. Know what child molester was. This was not something that people were aware of. That other human beings. I don't know. It's on the heels of World War Two. I think I would have been a little more cautious. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That was an excellent case, things, guys. Ellen. Yeah, that was very very interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. Glad you liked it. I want to, yeah, I just, there's actually a movie in the 70s. There was a movie made about it. It's oh, a dang. British movie. It's just called 10 Rillington Place. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks. We're so glad really you're still good. with us. Thanks. Um, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, follow us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, send us an email, murder they spoke pod at gmail.com. We would love to hear from yeah. you. Tell us what you want to hear. Give us comments. Next week is heard. Chandler, so tune Am in. Am I missing anything? Oh, it is. Yeah. And, and murder doesn't discriminate. Yeah.
Murder doesn't discriminate, guys. So stay safe. <laughs> be vigilant. Yes. Constant. Don't vigilance. be going over to anybody's houses if they tell you they have something <laughs> that can cure you. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah. Unless it's your mom. Uh, <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> All right. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.